Hello, and welcome to the Humumu Halloween Home Horror Hoedown. The podcast where we watch 31 horror movies throughout the hallowed month of October. Ranging from the critically acclaimed to film school projects gone gruesomely awry. And we take them all way too seriously. I'm your host, Mike Hommel. And I'm your host, Sully Hommel. Now warning, we use a ghoulish number of spoilers, so watch the movies first. Second warning, we don't know anything about anything, so don't take us seriously while we take these movies seriously. Six, seventy-nine, nineteen, eleven, ninety-two, twenty, forty-eight, one, thirty-two. Ooh, if that doesn't make you think ghost stories, I don't know what does. Kind of makes me think lost. Yeah, <laughs> I had that exact same thought. Honestly, I think the fact that I that we had seen lost and you know in the like credits they had all the numbers and whatnot. Yeah. I'm sure that played a part in it too, but when I saw those numbers on the spray painted on the doors of that one building, mm-hmm. it was like, "Oh, we want to pay attention to this." Yeah, we want to pay attention to it in the movie Ghost Stories from 2018, a British film, uh, which you could call an anthology, if you were so inclined, containing three ghost stories and a wraparound story. Okay, if you were sitting in the room with me, you would see a very confused look on my face because... I did not get anthology from this at all. Whoa! My brain! It is explosioning! This is so weird because, yeah, no. This was not an anthology. This was just a movie with lots of parts. Parts don't make anthology. Oh my gosh! And you insisted (laughs) Scary Stories was an anthology. Yes, because it was just separate sections. Stories. Like, for example, if they had a title card saying Case One, Tony Marshall, and then cut away from our characters to completely different characters in a completely different scenario, living out their lives, and then come back to our characters. Whereas in Scary Stories, the characters of the main story did their thing in the separate scenarios that you discuss, which is not they just did stuff i can't believe this so here's here's the thing what's the thing scary stories to tell in the dark was a book of completely unrelated stories and they took that book of completely unrelated stories and jammed it into a movie that pretended they were all related that feels like an anthology to me this was a movie about a guy researching three different case studies. That's called a wraparound story. Yeah, if it's created as the wraparound, but it wasn't. This was his story, and these were flashbacks. These were pieces of information being provided to him that he didn't already have. I completely disagree with you. I do see how it's a fine line, but this did not feel like an anthology That's what's crazy. I'm vehemently defending this when I thought this movie was really straddling a line between anthology and not anthology, whereas Scary Stories was clearly not an anthology. But it's like, you've got the whole yeah, thing flipped. And how can this be? How can this podcast continue when reality has no definition any longer? <laughs> it's like, am I having some kind of crazy coma dream that doesn't make any sense? 
Warning, before listening to this podcast, you definitely want to go watch this movie. Also, you might want to go watch the movie Stay, because I'm probably going to spoil that one too. And it's not a horror movie, so if your concern is horror, that one is just fine. It's a psychological thriller. Yes. So jumping right into the spoilers of this movie, as we are. We do that. This movie is the culmination of a fevered coma dream of the main character. Yep. Not an original concept, but it is a fun concept to experience. As soon as I started figuring out that all of the things that were going on were related to the professor, the main character, it Im- immediately reminded me of the movie Stay, which is always one of my favorites. Like it, It's one of those movies that sticks in your mind. Stays. Stays in your mind, which is ironic because I can never remember what it's called. And we always have to look it up every single time. I've seen the trailer so many times now. (laughs) I've gotten really good at Googling that movie about the guy who was dying (laughs) and, you know, whatever, after a car accident. So spoilers, that's what's happening in Stay. But you don't know that. And in this movie, you don't know that that's what's going on until the very end. And instead, it's just like other people are having all of these issues and the main character is the um, kind of eye of the storm. Yes. And the classic of all of this is a little something called The Wizard of Oz. It's the same plot as The Wizard of Oz that all these movies are doing where at the end, oh, it was all a dream, and you were there, and you, you were, were there. there. It, exactly. And that's what it's about, is at the end you go, oh, because that guy was actually his doctor, and that was uh-huh. the nurse, and they were, and because they were talking about this, that affected his dream, and very mm-hmm. interesting. Oh, another one that sort of does that, not so much the whole concept, but like the, um, oh, everything from the story is relevant in another way is Usual Suspects. Ah, yes. Which also, one of my favorite movies, although I am sad to admit that now that we know what we know about Kevin Spacey. So this falls into the category of movies that appeal to me greatly, and Mm -hmm. stories in general that appeal to me, like, on a deep gut, heart sort of level. Because I love... That confusion of, I know there's something going on, but I don't know what it is yet. Me too. I'm super intrigued. Like, it keeps me interested. I'm I'm watching. And then when they when it becomes clear that little things are going to come up later, you know, the girl in the yellow dress is the doll in the yellow dress is, you know, a doll that was left in his hospital room. Like, things start to, like cycle through the stories more and more and more until yeah. everything is tied together in this like perfect little morsel of a story. It's just, yeah. oh, it feels good. It's the kind of thing where you can watch it again and start to put together all these things much sooner and go, oh, and that's that thing. And this yep. is that. Because now you have all the information and it becomes a lot of fun and it makes it worth seeing it. More than once. I mean, simple things like a garbage bag, you know, like, like things I didn't pick up on, you know, a lot of it I did pick up on. The girl in the yellow dress was very obviously like, hey, pay attention to this, (laughs) right? Yeah. But there were other things where later they'd come back and I'd be like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. And what else did I miss? And so, yeah, we weren't even done watching this movie and I was already like, oh, we should watch it again right away as soon Uh as it's done. Yeah, the the first time we see 
the yellow doll, which is in like the third story, that was kind of the first thing where it's like, wait, why is something from that other guy's story in uh-huh. this story, that's very strange. Uh-huh. And I knew the numbers were going to be connected throughout, especially because they throw them in your face during the title credits. But I, I was trying to figure out what all that meant. And suddenly, when that guy was telling his story, Martin Freeman is the third guy telling a story. Uh, just another reason to love this movie. He definitely. That story started to feel like this is not the same. This is going to be connected to the others something weird is going mm. on here mm-hmm. it was weird it was weird and and martin freeman was in fact connected to more than just his portion of the uh, flashbacks mm-hmm. um speaking of martin freeman he is one of my favorite actors i've liked him since way back in the british office oh yes and he just keeps getting better. Like, he's one of those actors that just keeps finding his roles and, and yeah. becoming more and more somebody you realize, oh, if he's in that, I have to see that because it's going to yeah. be good. I was actually thinking during this, I'm like, he's really good at what he does, but it is what he does. Like, is it though? I, it feels like it to me that there's one thing he does and he talks really fast and takes you through stuff. So the talking really fast thing, I think, is part of what I like about him. Like, yeah. I am I'm a huge fan of all things Aaron Sorkin. Um, I love the fast walk and talk. So that's what that story was. That element. Yeah, definitely appeals to me. But actually, while we were watching him in this role, I actually had the opposite thought. I was like, oh, it's kind of cool to see him do something different. Because in this role, he was a straight up jerk. Like he was a bad person. There was nothing to like about him for probably 15 minutes of his story. And it was interesting for me to see this actor who has played characters I really like, um, you know, the guy from The Office, Dr. Watson, I mean, he and Benedict Cumberbatch are oh, mwah, perfect together. <laughs> so to watch him play a role where I was like, oh, this guy is gross. I don't like him. Like, there's nothing about him I yeah. like. And then to find out he really was kind of playing the devil, right? Like, Sort of. He was playing an afterlife, all-knowing, omniscient, omniscient sort of character. But he was playing it. Like, so it could have gone either way. It could have been God or the devil. Or something in between. Right. But he was definitely evil. Now, I want to step into that briar patch. Okay. Because that's something I found very interesting in this movie. There's a classic horror trope of the skeptic encountering ghosts. And the story is, you know, he refuses to accept it. it. Everything has to follow reality. And this doesn't do it. This can't be happening And he gets his comeuppance and ghosts eat him. In this movie, though, that's the story we start with. And Mm -hmm. for one thing, he sticks to his guns. Like at the end, he's like, no, you were wrong. All this This totally can be explained. Mm -hmm. No problem. Um, But of course, then things get really supernatural on him and he's forced to be like, okay, what's going on? Right. But it turns out he's right. Everything can be explained. And that's the twist, is that at the end, there is nothing supernatural going on. So no, there is no God or the devil. That's just another character in his head telling him this story. So I think that was kind of cool that they found a way to tell that story, but bring it around to still being real. Right. And almost more than saying there's no supernatural, it sort of presents the idea that 
there is supernatural and it's our brains and mm. our brains ability to do things we can't even begin to understand. As they say many times in this movie, the brain sees what it wants to see. Yes. They also say life finds a way. So there was a little, <laughs> That's uh, true. They little do. Jurassic Park <laughs> homage in there. Do you want to talk about the three case studies that the professor looks into? There was the night watchman. Tony Matthews. Oh, I'm glad you wrote it down because I did not. Who um, had a daughter who was sick with locked-in syndrome, which is what the main character Uh ends up being diagnosed with. And I had a flashback to this later. During his story, the radio starts switching over to talking about locked-in syndrome Uh and comas. And I'm like, oh, you know, the ghosts are getting him. But why are the ghosts talking about he instead of her? Uh Uh-huh. And there was a reason. Yep. It was exactly the dialogue from later on. Question number one. Why are there multiple night watchmen guarding a condemned trash building? (laughs) I don't know. I guess because it's all in this guy's head. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. This was a point, actually, when the main character first starts talking to Tony and asking him about about his experiences, Tony doesn't want to talk. And he keeps pushing back and is like, let's not talk about that. And it went on too long. At that point, Mm -hmm. I was like, this movie is going to be boring. Like, how long are we going to sit here pushing off the start of the story? (laughs) Like, he just won't do it. It was already established that he was uncomfortable, that there was something he was hiding, which was really all that was doing. Yeah, they just really kept pushing it. So that was the case study, too, where where the story he told was the one that was most easily explainable by real things. Like, as he's telling this ghost yeah. story, I'm like, really? This other paranormal investigator wasn't able to right. figure this one out? Like, there's nothing really going on here aside from it's a dark, scary place and, and he's he guilt-ridden, scared. right? Yeah. So that was definitely the easiest to explain away, and they they get progressively harder. And part of the fun is he goes down a hallway of rooms um, that, you know, like cells, because this place used to be some kind of asylum, and each of the cells has a number on the door, and the numbers are not in any reasonable sequence. Hmm. Hmm. Moving on. So then we get to Simon Rifkind. Uh, Rifkind. (laughs) Yes, Simon Rifkind, who is, I don't know who that actor is, but I thought he did an amazing job of playing this completely anxiety-ridden, melting-down character. Yeah. Like, the, the way his face was, how watery his eyes were, like, he just... I wanted to give this poor kid a hug, but it's also very clear that you cannot go near him and he does not want to be touched. Yeah, and that whole story felt very trippy. Like, Mm -hmm. you didn't know what was going on. His parents were just standing still in the kitchen, staring at the wall as the sink was running. Then upstairs something is going on, Mm -hmm. but he, he says there's nobody upstairs. Right. And it's just dark and things seem to be shifting a little bit inside this house and something's going on and that was very well done just like who knows what's going on here right it's it's just creepy yeah i think this is one of the first places where i started to think there was more to this story than just a paranormal investigator investigating the paranormal because we jump from him having his little emotional meltdown theoretically because of what he experienced 
into the flashback of him experiencing it. And before he experiences it, he's already in full on meltdown mode. Like, yeah. so I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, why is that happening? Yeah, that was weird. He was driving home from a party and it felt like, what happened to him at that party? <laughs> right, right. And we never got to find out. Because I don't think there really was anything. I think no. that was just, you know, that was just the professor's brain taking this voice that he hears in his hospital room who always sounds anxious and <laughs> yeah. kind of downtrodden and, you know, the the milk toast kind of character. And that's all he could make that character do then. Like he couldn't, there was no mm-hmm. calm, collected version of him in his brain. Yeah. So that one was interesting. I liked the demon that he hit with his car. Like you don't <laughs> see it a whole lot, but there's like a flash of it. And it was it was a very classic, like satanic goat demon. Like yeah. it had the the goat horns, it had hooves. Like I'm sure there is some specific artist that it made me think of, and I don't know who it is, but it was a classic demon. And I really liked that. And what we get from that demon, speaking of homage, is a Sam Raimi monster cam as it motorcycles through the forest after him. Oh, yeah. So they they threw that in there for sure. And it's very distinct. It's a very distinct camera. (laughs) Okay, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) Bonus points to anybody who knows what that reference comes from. Okay, then we go on to the third case study. Mike Priddle. He's an investor, you know, money management kind of a guy, but also very British. Like he was wearing yes. waistcoats and, <laughs> you know, marching through the moors with his shotgun and um, wearing, you know, a very British looking hat. I don't know. There was something exceptionally British about him in this role. And he is telling the story of his wife who was a high-powered lawyer who decided to get pregnant late in life and what happened during their pregnancy. Yes, and he was simultaneously still being the high-powered lawyer. He kept breaking to take calls on his phone yep, and just totally out of the blue interrupting. And yet, very haunted. There was something very wrong the whole time he was telling this story. And we mm-hmm. found out at the end of the story what was wrong. Right, so... His story is the least explainable through natural happenings, right? Like he has an experience where for some reason he's at home. This is the high powered (laughs) part of it. Like his wife is spotting and like goes to the hospital because her, you know, she's late in the pregnancy and she's having issues. He takes her to the hospital and then he just goes home and like hangs out for the rest of the night. Like he doesn't rush back. He just hangs out. So he's at home and he's, or he's visited by the vision of his baby and his wife saying we are dead. Yeah. And then he's gets a call that they've died. Well, well no, he gets a call that his wife died and that now he has this son named Barty who we never see but is described as having torn her apart and you know yeah. being like that he was glad she never lived to see what he looked like. Uh-huh. Creepy. Yeah, and he straight up saw like, you know, poltergeists are always stacking things up and he literally just saw it happen in front of him, which is never what happens. You know, it's always you enter the room and everything's stacked. So it's like, how do you explain that other than he's lying or he was high or whatever? Right. Yeah. And he didn't come across like the Simon character comes across as someone whose brain would create things to terrify him. Like you couldn't trust his (laughs) explanation of what happened. The um, Mike 
Priddle character comes across as someone who is very observant and clear cut and doesn't make stuff up and is going to tell you exactly what he saw. So when he says, I saw, you know, all of these changing table items stack themselves up right in front of me, you're inclined to believe him. And then he shoots himself. Yeah. Although I kind of knew that was coming. Like it still startled me when it happened, but I knew like as soon as he pulled that shotgun out of the shed with the numbers on the door, I was the like, oh, this is bad. Door, yes. Yeah. I knew something was going to happen. I didn't know. I mean, I thought he was being very British and walking through the moors with a shotgun. <laughs> I mean, there was the element of it, but it was also, there was just a creep factor to the whole thing. There was. You could tell something was wrong. Yeah. Although at one point he hands the gun to... The professor? So I was like, oh, you know, what's going to happen here? Because the professor at this point was sketched out. Like, he was pretty twitchy. And he had definitely, he was had been seeing things that were making him very uncomfortable. That also makes me think of the fact that at this point in the movie, a couple of the characters have said things to the professor, hinting that he had a secret that he wasn't telling as well. Yes, and the professor, as he investigated these cases, he kept getting haunted a little bit by two different things. One was like a ghost of himself in his car, mm-hmm. kind of staring Looking at him. dead. Yeah. So but alive. He's like, that's not good. And another one was a guy in a hoodie. You couldn't see his face. Like a parka hoodie. Yeah, yeah. kept like sneaking up on him and... He's like, yeah. what's going on there? I don't like that. But he did know what was going on there. He did. And and it became more and more apparent that he knew what those things were and that he was keeping secrets from us, which then, you know, you're like, oh, okay, you know, all this is starting to tie together. Right. And then things get weird. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the tearing through the scenery and like, oh, see, this is all pretend and this backdrop is just paper and we're going to tear through it. Now we're in a completely different place. Happened a couple of times. What did you think of the use of that? Oh, that was cool. And this might be a good time to point out that this movie is based on a stage play, which I bet has that exact thing happening in it. Oh, I bet that works really well (laughs) as a stage play. Ooh, I like that. Well, right, because you know what also happened there before he ripped it, and it didn't make any sense in the movie, but would be very interesting in a play. When the old guy he's talking to starts freaking him out, the professor goes, okay, can we cut? And the old guy is like, I don't know who you're talking to, but we're Uh just going to keep doing this. Uh Uh-huh. And that would be interesting in a play. Yeah. Huh. I saw that in the credits, but it didn't, like, click with me. So, yeah, so we start, like, rapidly jumping through different scenes and times and we go back to the old guy that that like his mentor who passed him these assignments you know like oh this is going to prove to you that we were both wrong all along yes and this old guy turns into martin freeman yeah which i suspected he was earlier he didn't look like him that's what threw me off is he sounded like martin freeman And I'm like, I know Martin Freeman's in this movie. Is he playing an old guy in super heavy makeup? And the thing that threw me off was the makeup didn't look like old Martin Freeman. Sure. It was also a disguise. Right. And because what I thought was going to happen was we were going to go back into the past story of this old guy. Mm -hmm. And that would be played by Martin Freeman. Didn't happen. What it really was, was Martin Freeman in disguise. And he ripped his face off and revealed. And becomes this more omniscient... Yeah. Post-death spirit guide kind of thing. Like, he's no longer a real person anymore. Although he is still caring for 
Barty, his yeah, he has to. creepy infant who eats cat food. And at that point, I made a huge note in all capital letters. <laughs> I am so confused. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Around that point is where I had the thought I have occasionally, it's like every maybe five or six movies we see, I have this idea that I have no idea how somebody wrote this. Like, Mm -hmm. it makes sense. It all holds together. But how did you come up with this series of events? Like, these are kind of just random things, which is what happens in real life. But like, why didn't you follow the tropes? And no, this is how did you decide this was based on him being guilty over this thing as a kid? And where'd you come up with this counting numbers thing? And it's weird. But I mean, it's what happens. Everyone writes from their own experience. So personally, those tend to be the stories that I like. Like, I like a story that puts me in a place where I don't know what's going on, but I want to. And those, you have to have both of those things. There are plenty of horror movies where I'm sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) But unfortunately, I don't care enough to really want to figure it out. Or I know that nobody's going to actually explain it. Like, this is not going to wrap up nicely. Mm -hmm. Or there can be that element of I want to, like, I'm enjoying this. I want to see how this ends, but I kind of can see where it's going. Like, I'm not confused. I don't have any kind of, there's nothing new coming. So when I get a movie that has both pieces, I always enjoy that. When it has both of those pieces and it takes all of the threads, all of every little different color thread that they've been weaving into this, and it all comes into a clear picture that makes sense and that I enjoy looking at at the end. I'm just like, oh, that's brilliant. It reminds me of um, the way Neil Stevenson writes. Like Mm, his- Yeah, um, Cryptonomicon. Yes, Cryptonomicon is one of my most favorite examples of a story that seems to be made up of completely different- people and places an anthology if you will it's <laughs> do you kidding. think that's an anthology? i'm just kidding <laughs> because it's exactly the same <laughs> it's not exactly the um, same you know all of these different pieces and then they they just all come together beautifully it's it's an art and it's one that i'm a little envious of i think because i don't know how to do that well that's kind of the thing where I get like, how did they write this? Because right. not not because of the complicated weaving, because I can see that they're like, this is a thing. Let's keep it throughout. But how did they decide the middle story is going to be about a kid who hit and runs a goat man? Like that's so random and doesn't connect to anything else. It just is what it is, and you have to deal with that. I don't know. It's strange. It feels very random, but it it's fine. There's no reason mm-hmm. why it wouldn't be. It's just whatever this guy was thinking up at the time. Sure. I'm sure that this is a kind of story that is not written linearly. Like he did not start, he, they, whoever wrote it, didn't start at the beginning of this story and write it as is. Like this, this is the kind of story you write backwards and forwards and then you put, oh, we're going to do some case studies and then you do a lot of massaging to make them all work together because you don't get puzzle pieces that fit together this well unless you have whittled away at each piece for an exceptionally long period of time. At least, I mean, that's if I were going to do it, that's how it would be. Maybe these people have a brain that works very differently than mine. Sure. In the end, well, not the end. This is kind of the second to last story of the movie. The devil god takes him to 
his youth, where he becomes a child all of a sudden and is being harassed by thugs who then turn from him to this mentally handicapped kid mm-hmm. and basically are like, you, Kojak, they call him, can join our gang if you go down this scary tunnel and see all the numbers that we've written on the walls of the tunnel and tell right. us what the 10th number is. Call, yeah, call out all the numbers as you see them and tell us, come back with the 10th number. And that is the numbers we've seen throughout the movie. And it's interesting because it's a totally random series of numbers and i'm kind of mad that in the end it really is just a random series of numbers but on the other hand it makes sense that a they would be a random series of numbers because that's what the kids did and if they were in order you wouldn't have to Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have to go find the 10th one and b it makes sense that it would be stuck in his head very distinctly right as part of this guilt and that it wouldn't pertain like none of the other stories including the final story of where he is now none of them have those numbers in a relevant way other than his brain putting them in yeah. there because they're not from those stories they are set <laughs> in concrete from this childhood experience that he had and just to be clear kojak has like an asthma attack and dies in the tunnel right Or at least he stops moving and nobody bothers to go get him, which is the point of the story because the kid, the main character, feels incredible guilt because he left. Mm -hmm. And and my favorite line in the movie is he tries to defend himself against Mm -hmm. that and he says, I did nothing. And Martin Freeman is like, that's right, you did nothing. Right. And what I really liked about this is that it turns out the whole thing, like the Martin Freeman character points out that... Everything he's done in his life, because he tries to explain, like, I didn't really do anything wrong. I just did nothing. And I've worked my whole life to make up for it. And he's like, no, you've worked your whole life to try to prove that there is no afterlife where you will be held accountable for this thing (laughs) you didn't do. Like, you're not doing it out of the goodness of your heart. You're doing it because you're terrified that this choice you made might end up having some consequence long-term if the afterlife exists. That's pretty good. Oh, it was amazing. Like, it was so good. It was so good. So then, of course, he's hearing this from this character in his brain because he felt all of this guilt. The, The images of himself trapped in a car dying were because he tried to kill himself through asphyxiation in his vehicle, self-asphyxiation, and failed. And that's why he's trapped in this coma. Even like another layer of that is that perhaps part of what's keeping him alive in this coma is still that fear that (laughs) if he dies, he's going to be held accountable. Like, oh, it all, every single piece of it is so good. Yeah, except why does that guy call him Sunbeam? I think that's just, I think the janitor just, that's just who the janitor is. Like, I really liked that janitor character because he was the only one who treated this coma patient as if he was a human being still. Everybody else, the other two guys were just talking around him. Yeah, I liked that. And I also liked that his character in the story in his head was not likable. <laughs> he was rude and obnoxious, but it was the same guy. Yeah. Using the same words, but they were yeah. like pejorative in the story and friendly in reality. Interesting. And that's sort of about perspective too, like what he's hearing because of where he is and who he is and what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
might not be what's actually being said. Because like you said, at the very beginning of this podcast, we're going to wrap it all up because we're good <gasps> at this. We tied it all together. Reality isn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Speaking of reality, time and space are a thing. Yes. Are you suggesting that it, this is the time and space for us to do... Where we should put some numbers into people's ratings. heads? Ratings. I feel like I have already fairly clearly established all of the many, 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 many reasons why I'm giving this movie a five. Many, many, many. I'm surprised. Five plus. Oh my gosh. Is this a five plus? This is a five plus. I feel like it's crazy that we like almost back to back saw the zero of the month and the five plus of the month. <laughs> wow. Ooh, it's so early. It's so early in the month to give the five plus because I don't. You aren't limited to one five plus. I sort of feel like I am. Uh, I mean, I don't you can't know. just hand out those pluses willy nilly. Well, you should be very careful with them. But if you feel it, it's, it's oh, true. This, this is, there's nothing I didn't like about this movie. This is a five plus. I'm giving this movie five plus cans of kitty chow out of five <laughs> wow i did not know that that was gonna happen and i'm flabberslustered <laughs> but here's the thing i was going to before we had a discussion i mean i wasn't sure what i was gonna rate but i was thinking like four or four and a half mm-hmm but you have Which convinced me. Which is low me. for you, considering... Oh, no, you didn't think it was an anthology. You did think it was... <laughs> no, it's... I don't just think I know this movie is an anthology. <laughs> and anyone so who thinks wrong. otherwise is deluded and living in a coma. Reality is not a thing. Um, Anthologies are a thing. So and they're not scary stories to tell in the dark. So that's low for you, is what I'm saying. That's low for you for an anthology. You tend it's to like them. It's not. I do like them, but... I mean, a four is a good rating, but I think I've been too picky these days. Like I keep waiting for The Endless to come back and give me a five or The Duke. And this movie is a five. And you have convinced me through our discussion that, you know, I, I'm in a weird place this month, I think. And this is five cans of Kitty Chow out of five. It's not a five plus. We're going to need... Something very special for that. Spoiler alert, it is a five plus. <laughs> but it is a five. And it's it was definitely great. Like, I was very glad to see it. And I do love all the things tying together. Yep. And maybe one day we will see it again and put those pieces together earlier. Because I saw a mention on IMDb that the pub, I assume it's the pub he meets Tony Marshall in, mm -hmm. is called The Tenth Number. So uh, come on. See, yeah, it'll be fun. You know, and maybe some of those things where you're like, this thing wasn't relevant. Maybe the demon is relevant in some way yeah. that we just didn't pick up on because we weren't watching for a demon yet. And if we watch it again, we'll be like, oh. All right. Well, we're going to watch some trash tomorrow. So let's go. Yay. I love bad movies. Yay. My brain! It is explosioning! Yay!